birthday to us. This is the 200th episode of OMN's Coffee Shop Conversations. I'd like to thank all of our guests who have come in and talked to us over the years. On December 4, 2014, we premiered with saxophonist Mary Sue Tobin. We've had her back on, too. Sometimes it's been funny. Sometimes we've learned something new about musicians we love. Sometimes we've discovered folks we hadn't heard of. And sometimes we've cried over people that we've lost. This time... OMN's national editor, Art Levine, is back. He's an author and investigative reporter when he's not writing about music and being funny. He and I have been doing these things since the 1980s, and we've been friends since 1970. With that in mind, happy birthday to us. Art, I was I, I was thinking about who I, who, who I would have on for the... the uh, 200th episode of Coffee Shop Conversations, and I thought it had to be you. <laughs> well, that's that's well. Thank you very much, Tom. And then and, you know, we, and then I watched the Bob Dylan Rolling Thunder documentary the other night, and I went, "Oh my God, <laughs> that's going to be our jumping-off point." <laughs> yep. Well, Art Levine is a Dylan fan. And uh, I've been following him. I, what I found about myself is literally kind of reminds me of a great old Maria Bamford joke. She had the nerve to say in a synagogue, she said, you know, I did not know it was possible to run out of Holocaust documentaries in your Netflix queue. <laughs> and, and I felt that way about there's not enough Dylan books that I can read. I mean, I just <laughs> – I just I read every biography I can from positively Main Street, um, the early you know early Tony Scaduto to David Hadjus to uh, so many others behind the mask and all these other biographies and I'm reading a new one now um, that is very good. It's called The Ballad of uh, Bob Bob Dylan and it's by uh, I believe it's Mark David Epstein, but it's uh-huh. it's one of these books that incorporates previous works, has fresh analysis and insights, and uh-huh. references Chronicles and explains exactly where Chronicles is making things up. And I don't care because it's Bob Dylan. But th- <laughs> well, that, which but brings us to the point here, here, of fabrication. Yes. Yes. Okay, in, now look. Let me ask you. Let me ask you, let me ask you a question. Did you know that there were fabrications in this documentary before you saw it? I think I heard that I heard I I got hints that there were fabrications like like I there were little references where they would say uh, I'd see little summaries that would reference, uh, you know, and he made it clear a Bob Dylan story, but also <laughs> little references to admit, you know, there's some little I saw one passing reference to fictions and I thought. That would have meant simply someone is tall tailing in the middle of an interview. Uh-huh. I had no idea until I read this Rolling Stone piece, right. which you shouldn't right. actually. I'm not clear whether you should read it before or after seeing the I film. Agree. I totally agree because when I saw the documentary, the Rolling Thunder uh, review documentary, the Scorsese did with Dylan. Um, I didn't. I hadn't read that. I had no idea. So I just bought it all. I just bought right. It. I I oh, bought Sharon, it. Sharon Stone was there, and and she was sixteen, and she went on a tour with him. Okay. Right, right. I good, I good for Bob. 
right? <laughs> Boy, he has such an eye for talent. Um, you know, and that's one way of putting it. He probably has a satyr, <laughs> S-A-T-Y-R's reputation a bit. But but here's the thing: is I it was so interesting to me that this is the power of movies that I knew a fair amount about the making of the tour uh-huh. at Ronaldo and Clara uh-huh. and. And when the director shows up, who's being interviewed, so is this going to be spoilers? I yeah, think it's that we to- total feel, spoilers. I'll, I think we it, should feel free it, to yes, tell people yes. what to say, that, yes, right? Because yes. even I, a, Dilla, a kind of Dylanologist who is not a crazy person like A.J. Weberman, but someone <laughs> who's had a kind of rabbinical Talmudic interest <laughs> in Dylan for years – and I will tell you later my own personal meeting with Bob Dylan's story. Right. Um, but, so, but we're talking about the guy who was the director character in this the documentary. director character, and right. here's the point. I kind of knew that I didn't, rem- I didn't recognize the name, Yeah. and I just took it on face value that, yeah, I guess yeah. he must have been the thing. And I knew that Dylan was – I knew that Dylan was the nominal director of Ronaldo and Clara, and he uh-huh. presumably had some cinematographer. <laughs> um, so to describe it as, you know, he was the director, and then it, you know, then they had little footage of him, yeah. you know, shooting yeah. with a camera. Yes. It was very yes. artful. Now, you want to read something really true? <laughs> it charming. turns out he's Bette Midler's husband and an actor. That's right. He was part of this. I actually remember when Bette Midler married this person who was part of this performance art group that was German, and they would, like, throw not quite excrement on the stage, but they would roll around and have big things on their noses. Right. They would just do all sorts of outrageous stuff. Yeah. And he was German. Not even German Jewish, I don't think. Just German and Bette Midler, you know, kind of a Jew, Jewish heroine, uh, married this guy. But he could have been Jewish. In any case, they were extremely avant-garde yeah. that yeah. even I found distasteful right. about them. And I went, man, I guess he's got something going for him because and, Bette Midler's pretty damn charming. And so he was playing the character of the director – However, if you didn't know that the, there was there was anything fictitious about this documentary, you were convinced he was the he was the director. Absolutely, they did another thing that was kind of amazing. So the four fakeries, just for those people who are going to watch it, the four <laughs> four of the fakeries is um, uh, Sharon Stone. Yes possible she may have attended it but certainly didn't go on tour i don't think she even attended any shows no i think that was totally made up it was totally made up yeah. and then apparently they have a record executive who's who's being interviewed as they have a guy who's actually like the head of warner brothers or the he or some huge oh yeah and he, he was fictitious he is a real <laughs> record executive but he was playing the part of the promoter Right. And he's telling all right. these stories about the right. promotion. Yes. Uh, and then, but of course, there were real people there, like this guy I never heard of before. Apparently, I I did like him both back then and now. Ratso, Slo- Larry Ratso Sloman, 
who apparently did write he's a real Rolling Stone reporter and they have uh you know audio interviews of him being hounded by his Rolling Stone editor to turn in the copy. Right. 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 And and But that was that was that tr- true or not? Oh, that is true. That's okay. real. That's a real guy and then because I'm reading I'm reading but this is by that really him. I mean, yes. Everything words, is called into question. Everything is called into question. Well, not if you're a true nut. <laughs> like, like, in other words, if you're a real fanatic, once you – here's the point is, as a fanatic who uh, had my guard down, I didn't notice these <laughs> things at first. But then, because I know the players, and I can also look things up, so – Larry Sloman is, in fact, referenced in this Mark David, uh, if I'm getting his <laughs> Epstein's biography, The Ballad of Bob Dylan, as having written a very good book on the tour. And so I found that very, very striking that yeah. that, that, that was one of the uh, – so it's by – oh, it's Daniel Mark Epstein, yeah. The Ballad and, of and, Bob Dylan. And then I read somebody said, well, you know – a lot of the stuff in Chronicles Volume 1, his autobiography was made up, too. And I went, oh, I never thought about that. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think about that either. And that, that bothered me a little more. But I don't know if it's that much. Is well, here's the thing. I asked, I've read I asked, enough. I, I, asked the great, I asked the great boogie-woogie piano player, who's also as big a, a, a Dylan file as you, um, David Vest, who is who yeah. won the you know the last six out of the last seven best blues piano players in in Canada prizes, the Maple Maple Blues Award. I asked him. I said, so how much of Chronicles Volume One is, did he make up? And David said, mainly the bits about mathematical guitar playing. <laughs> oh, okay. And then well, he says, it turns and, out. And, wait a minute, one more thing. And then he says, I believe the motorcycle ride in Louisiana was true. Okay, here's the other thing that's not true, and it makes up about of a fifth of the book. Yeah. <laughs> okay, it's in, and it's in, it's in, but but this is what was so cool is, it's in the Ballad of Bob Dylan, uh-huh. and it's a bit about this, and this is really a conflation. What it is, he stay, he claims he stayed at a. A, uh-huh. a very hip couple's house. I think they may go by the name Gooch. Oh yeah, something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, the book. And they had all these books. Yes. Apparently, yeah. no such couple exists. <laughs> okay, but here's the point: the books do exist, and they do reflect <laughs> his real writing interests, which um, don't think I don't think he fabricated. So the point is. This very astute critic biographer, Daniel Mark Epstein, says, okay, so there's no such magical couple with the most capacious library known on earth <laughs> by a private individual that just happened to meet Bob Dylan's interest. Now, this is, the truth is Dave Van Ronk's personal library would be pretty damn extraordinary. Right. But it isn't quite as having, I can't even pronounce it, Thudisides, the, the Roman historian. So this, this author says, okay, put aside the fact that there was no such couple and there's no such private home. There's exactly all these books. These books, in fact, are a guide to what are – 
what were the literary interests? And it reminded me of this fabulous story that Dave Van Ronk tells in his Mayor of Greenwich Village book, where Dylan, who, you know, even after the Newsweek article exposed the fact, you know, by 62 or 3, yeah. that he wasn't, in fact, an oaky waif, right. but middle class <laughs> yeah. uh Middle class Jewish offspring of a respectful, <laughs> yeah. respectable couple in Hibbing, Montana, that was in the welfare that owned, a, a, I mean, a department store and and so on, uh, or a hardware store. Is he is he's asking Dylan, hey, have you ever looked into you know Francois Villon or any of the French symbolist poets? They'd really interest you. And Dylan goes, I don't know, would they? You know, and all this. So later. <laughs> He's he's in he's in Dylan's apartment, which this by this time he's actually has his own apartment, not yeah. sleeping on everyone's couch. Uh-huh. Um, and there on the bookshelf are all these French symbolist poets. He <laughs> takes it off the shelf. <laughs> there is lined, underlined, and 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 there's um uh there's there's uh, you know there's this uh extraordinary interest and there's actually a really uh, so this this rolling thunder review was so it is interesting there is fakery but there's so much real interesting stuff in there (laughs) Uh, beside the quality of the performances here here's where I'm telling you where Martin Scorsese needs to beyond getting Oscars has to get some kind of archive they want to have an archivalist Hall of Fame, <laughs> both for <laughs> No Direction Home yeah. and this documentary. How did he extract and clean up this extraordinary footage of what were horrible documentaries? Where the oh, plus footage... he only had the, he only had the work print to, to work from on, on on this new one. Oh, okay. From yeah. but he, but he had the raw footage behind. The most of this did not appear in Ronaldo and Clara because right. nothing of coherence or value. Yeah. There'd be there, you'd have these horribly <laughs> improvised scenes between everybody in mask paint, Joan Baez, and they'd all be right. given names like yeah. the wife, the singer, <laughs> and you know it was. I'll tell you, a, a close call for intellectuals who follow this is which which prominent artists are the worst going out of their own field. Why? <laughs> it's a close tie between Norman yeah. Mailer and the documentary Maidstone <laughs> and Bob Dylan and Renardo and Claro plus eat the document. So I have to give it. I have to give it to Dylan. But what? But the thing what, is, the thing is, Scorsese's extracting of the great concert footage from both of those horrible I films. Know, yes, I agree. But what you can't, what you, what can you believe that Dylan out of that comes out of Dylan's mouth? Look, here's a, just a little thing, right? I, I when when Dylan did his uh, weekly radio show year, about 10, right. 10, 15 years ago, I recorded them all. It was wasn't even it was it was. Um, uh, it, it was. It wasn't even serious XM. It was just XM at the time, right? It was great. Anyway, so I have them all. I have CDs of them all, right? And I'm listening to one of them, and he plays this song that I just really love, uh, called "Penny Rio." It's a it's it's a ska tune, right? Right. And he introduces it by saying, or coming out of it, saying, 
that uh, it was uh, it really was a, the song was originally a Mento song. Mento was the kind of music that preceded ska. Right. And then he says, you know, there's a, there's a guy on the radio named Dr. Demento, and he plays nothing but that kind of music. Okay, well, that's a joke. Well, See, that's a clear joke. No, it's not a clear joke. Not if you don't know it. Well, I'm sorry. That's a, no, that's a very, very obscure joke. <laughs> yes, but a joke that uh, here's the, here's a good threshold is if <laughs> I get the joke, it's meant as a joke. If I don't get it, <laughs> it's not. A, so that's why I was I did take even though I had suspicions. For instance, the other big thing is where did he get the idea of the mask? Uh, the, the the mask is he went to see Early Kiss taken by Susie Rotolo <laughs> to see Kiss. So here, here's the thing that set up my guard is I had read Susie Rotolo's biography, okay, autobiography. I kind of knew a lot about Rotolo and Dylan. I don't recall I took him to see Early Kiss. Also, anyone who knows Susie Rotolo, the offspring of communists, who was at 15 working in the core office, introduced Dylan to Breck with no, no way. No way is Susie Rotolo going to a club in Queens when she lives in the village who, and, and hangs out purely with the most coolest avant-garde poets and folkies in the village scene to go see Kiss. Okay? Wouldn't have happened. <laughs> the thing is, you know, how, how many oh, – I mean, go back to the beginning. His name isn't Dylan. <laughs> yeah, well, he made that's, it up. <laughs> I tell you, this book he, is Bob so wonderful. Dylan is a fraud. He's a fraud. <laughs> yeah, he is a fraud. And in fact, Dave, Mark David Epstein uses this brilliantly. He has an entire chapter that has, I wish I had it right in front of me, but but take my word for it. It's worth looking up. I get it on Scribd, which I recommend for any omnivores. It's Netflix for books and audiobooks. Uh-huh. It's got at you know you don't have to pay fifteen dollars for one. You get you pay ten dollars a month, and you get you know like two hundred thousand books and audiobooks, and they rotate the inventory. So okay. this is on there. And I'm yeah. reading it, but he does a great, I brilliant idea. He takes every one of Dylan's lies uh-huh. and and he then creates a chapter called <laughs> Bob Dylan was born an orphan and you know, was born in New Mexico <laughs> and was or and he tells he combines every one of Dylan's completely bogus lies that he told in that first amazing year in New York in sixty yeah. one yeah. and creates a chapter and then he opens the next chapter. Robert Zimmerman was born so-and-so. And then he tells more of Dylan's real story. And then he talks about how Dylan, the fake character, merged with Zimmerman. But there's a, a really – for those who are into Dylan but don't want to read everything I've read um, – is there's a very, very good uh, uh, documentary on Amazon – that is in Amazon Prime that is about the amazing year and a half of Dylan's uh, like first three years of Dylan's um, explosive growth 
as an artist and a figure in in it, and it it, it has a name like uh, uh, I, I'm looking at it's Bob Dylan's Revolutionary Road or something like that. And the point of it is, it really it's made by uh, British filmmakers, but it has really great, really great, um, really terrific. Um, uh, really terrific uh, 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 um, uh, interviews and uh-huh. insights about his growth and 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 the things that he's he's done there. And it's called Bob Dylan: Roads Rapidly Changing, and it's available for free. Huh. Um, and it's and it really is. It also puts him in the context of the folk revival. And it has really smart commentary from. People like Robert Christgau, and but also people who knew him very well, like Maria Muldaur, who was very close with him. Mm-hmm. And but it also gave me, since I, whenever I here's here's one of my acid tests for Dylan fanatics. When I read a book or see a documentary that tells me something about Dylan that I didn't know before, yeah. I'm really impressed. <laughs> All right, that's enough of the weeds for not, enough enough of the Dylan weeds. Okay, let's but there's go another, in. There's another the, the uh, there's another uh music documentary that that came out around uh, uh, you know re, re, recently that totally blew my mind. I knew and and I feel so stupid. I feel really stupid that I didn't know who Clarence um uh Avant was is. Right, me too. How could I how could you discovered How could the two of us not know who he was is? I think it's the complete failure of white media. In other words, we're reading, you know, we're reading because he wasn't profiled in Rolling Stone, New York Times, Washington Post, or New Yorker. He should have had a New Yorker profile on him like 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Yeah. And obviously this is is another signal that despite our integrated culture, the so on in the community, even at the highest level, we have no idea about. So this guy, both of us were blown away by it. And you should tell the, your listeners some things about it, and I'll chip in some things. He has. The, I will say this: there's never been a documentary with more of a wider range of people from more walks of life in one film than this film. Oh, yeah, it is unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. This guy was was uh, he was basically an agent, but an entrepreneur, an executive in the music and industry, manager. and kind his, of manager and manager, and he, he's known as the godfather of black music because he was right. he had his fingers in everything. I mean, except Motown, yeah, pretty much. Um, right, but he even helped Motown revive later. Yeah, but his yeah. role in in discovering people and also in terms of. I couldn't believe that both, uh, you know, Jam and Lewis—I don't know all the names—and then and then and then Babyface, who then were trying to that these two teams of great young producers who reshaped uh, sort of soul and modern pop soul music both got their starts through him. But one of the things is he has he has he has he was um, in his role as an executive. And a kind of 
big deal maker, he would put together these incredible deals, like including films that I didn't even know about in the wake of the Martin Luther King uh, murder. There was this big documentary and concert film where all of the record labels contributed their artists, and it's called Save the Children, and it had artists from... Atlantic and Motown and Warners and everybody else, even before all these mergers, well before these mergers. And he was the one who put the deal together. But the near the end is this killer anecdote where you're you're seeing Barack Obama and Bill Clinton talking about him. Right. And very friendly, intimate terms and how influential they were. And then near the end, they say this killer anecdote where. Obama calls him up and says, you know, I've been picked to speak at the 2004 uh, presidential primary, but, uh, you know, I'm not on prime time. And he said, let me handle it. (laughs) And then he calls people at Kerry's team and others. And what happens? He gets on prime time, gives that speech about there's no red state, there's no blue state, you know. And we're all the United States, and he's launched on the way of becoming president of the United States twice. Yeah. Literally, this is such a pivotal moment in world history. It's and this guy. This, because of this guy, uh, 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 Clarence, Clarence Avon. Right, who never went past ninth grade, was born in a shack in the Deep South. Yeah. It's just the most extraordinary. It's the most, it really, it was very tearful because. It was very moving to see just how many people, and he presents a. Uh, we're allowed to curse on this uh, podcast, yes, yes. assuming. So he he basically, um, you know, was, was very blunt and cursed people out, but and presented the front of being uh, just. He just says the only things that count is numbers. You know, when you're born, when you died, money you make. You know, yeah, that's yeah. his front. Harsh, short, squat guy with a beard now, and clearly he was motivated by all sorts of altruistic passions and yeah. helping young people along, mm-hmm. and an eye for talent. The eye for talent, where he signs up Bill Withers, who who would otherwise would have was clearly falling between the stools because he was sort of a folky acoustic guy who was African American yeah. but yeah. wasn't doing standard folk music yeah. and, and and then just said, Yeah, I'll hire him to my small label and the guy takes off, you right. know? Yeah. I mean the Ivor it reminded me of but the sphere of influence is much broader than John Hammond Sr., whose story I've I've there's a PBS documentary worth chasing down and reading his biography. The, I think Kamala that, Harris is in it, talking about him like, right. like he, he's 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 her best friend. He t- everybody <laughs> talks about him as if, but this is the point: is Jamie Fox. Yeah. In other words, it's, it's literally you can't be a guest on the thing unless you own. One of the more extraordinary scenes is he they they first have these what appear to be one on one camera interviews where these top players of all of the major record labels, right? Mo yeah. Austin and uh-huh. all these players, guys who own, you know, and this the current black head of Sony and all that and then they cut away they did some one on one and yeah. then they're all in a room all together. All in one room, yes. 
all in a one room to pay tribute to this incredible entrepreneur and right. networker. Right. Now it's, it's called the, it's called, it's called the black it's called the black godfather. It's a tribute. Right. To and I, here's Ava. what I thought. Here is my I didn't read it closely. I went, oh, another thing about Nikki Barnes. Oh. I, <laughs> I thought it was gonna be a profile of another black drug dealer. And I, I'm fascinated by that. I thought, didn't I just see a Nikki Barnes profile? I'm not kidding. I, I just and I didn't look at the subtitle and realize I looked closely at the pictures. It was just Black Godfather, I just thought, oh, one of these big drug dealers. No, it's a huge – it's this guy who's this incredible networker. This guy is the living embodiment of what Malcolm Gladwell had written about. I think his book blinked or about um, three kinds of people who make change happen in a society and uh-huh. inside the in-stream culture. And sometimes they overlap. One is – the maven, the person who really knows the issue. Uh-huh. The other is the networker who brings people together. And the third is the salesman. Now, this guy, I think, had all of those elements. But primarily, he was the maven in that he could tell who was good and talented. Then his power of networking mm-hmm. was extraordinary. They're literally – I can compare them. I I consider myself a pretty good networker in my role as a reporter. Uh So for my book, Mental Health, Inc., How Corruption Lacks Oversight and Failed Reforms Endanger Our Most Vulnerable Citizens, and it was an excerpted cover story in Newsweek, I knew a very – in my field, I knew a very wide range of people across a wide divergent of opinions about – use of medications and different reforms and i was i was able to use that in reporting but his skill reminded me of this woman i met years ago who's kind of a pioneer in uh grassroots activism and solar she helped uh she wrote uh, books on green power and the, the politics of the solar age and was friends with E.F. Schumacher, helped to organize the first Earth Day. She was such an – her name's Hazel Henderson. This is pre-internet. She was such a networker and later became an advisor of the U.N. She had a Rolodex for the U.S. that was like unbelievably long. I never saw it, but I heard about it. And then she had a Rolodex for the world, okay? <laughs> so literally anybody in the world who knew her or in the U.S. said, who's working on water filtration in Mali? And she could get you at either that person or the per- or one phone call away. Literally there wasn't a reform effort anywhere. She was so hip that The Clash had her on one of their albums, as an wow. advisor, or maybe even a brief speaking part. Huh. That's how hip she was. Yeah, this yeah. guy, this guy is more than that. More than John Hammond Sr., who yeah. did everything from record Bessie Smith's uh, last recording session, discover Billie Holiday, change American music by bringing in Fletcher Henderson to arrange for Benny Goodman, hired and found. 
Count Basie but hearing him on a Midwest radio. Then when every folk label turned them down, he signed Bob Dylan. Springsteen read about this in a book on Bob Dylan, got an audition <laughs> with Hammond, it was signed. Yeah, and in yeah. his 80s, he signed uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I mean, and his son is John Hammond Jr. I mean, and he was a... He was a son of the uh, of the Vanderbilts or the Biltmores or somebody big, yeah. and he started out as a writing about the um, Scottsboro Boys for the Nation magazine. Just an extraordinary guy, but this guy exceeds him. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's quite a, quite a documentary, and and uh, I think everybody should uh, should watch it really. Um, and but now now every time I see a documentary, I'm wondering, is this all true? <laughs> right. Well, you know, I read it's so funny about that is I guess I feel myself. <clears throat> yeah, there's a very churlish review in Variety, I believe it is, or The Hollywood Reporter, where the guy explains, hey, this isn't really very funny that you're making this up, Marty. You know, it's this <laughs> yeah, really right. angry review where the guy <laughs> who clearly knows films, knows Scorsese's work, is trying to. To explain why, hey, it's not the 70s anymore. You shouldn't be pulling these kind of pranks on us. He, he was so offended. And my view was... How dare I you? Mean, it is kind of in the antic spirit that Dylan at one point had. Right. Um, Apparently still does, Art. Yeah. Yes, Dylan. Yeah. yeah. This is the thing is it's hard to tell... <clears throat> I, I do think he makes some stuff up, you know, but, you know, I mean, but, you know. To say, to say the least. <laughs> well, well, here's the thing is the interviews that he gave that were <clears throat> that we see in No Direction Home yeah. um, are, I think, uh, relatively honest interviews. They were given, they were conducted relatively? by but one of his own associates who he trusted. Relatively? That are weaved in. Relatively? Well, look, you know, I guess, you know, my, look, I will just have to, I guess the concept is with statements by Dylan, uh, we'll take things uh, with a grain of salt. But, Speaking of music, one of the new memes that I've discovered and I'm fans of, and I understand you're not, based on our correspondence, are not a big fan of, is comparing the current political season to musical developments. No, I don't. So, and musical no. artists. I kind of like it as a way of framing it. So, there's this article by uh, uh, kind of curmudgeon Bob Lefsitz whose biggest mystery is how the hell does this guy earn a living? Yeah. In other words, he's used to be an attorney in the entertainment field like 30 years ago, and he publishes a free newsletter and gives lectures, and I'm guessing has a pretty rich girlfriend, but even how he has a rich <laughs> girlfriend, I don't understand if you've ever seen Bob Lefsitz. Yeah. The whole thing, this is a, beside the fact is we don't know how he earns a living, so he compared early Springsteen when his early albums were cult and were not taking off, selling that well, but he was building word of mouth through touring. And he he compares Elizabeth Warren, who is rising in the polls through 
relatively, you know, relatively small scale encounters in the field and occasional TV exposure is so effective and articulate and has so many solid policy things that she's really taking off. And the other point, though, you know, is, you know, she's so passionate about what she believes. And, you know, my hope is that, you know, anyone that comes out of this primary season will be electable. Here's the, th- here's uh, the, here's and- the, here's the thing. It, it isn't that I don't – it isn't because I don't like Springsteen, which I've ne- I never have. But right. it, it's it's like um, – I, I, I don't know if, if, if you, you ever heard of Chris Berman. Chris Berman nope. is a guy that was one of the original people on ESPN. And he okay. he got so popular because he would he would he would throw out uh, lines from songs right during the play by play and all that. But but as time as time went on, because he started in the late eighties, right? right? As time went on, you know the songs were basically old rock and roll, and nobody and you know and and and, and, and younger people had no idea what the fuck he was talking about. Right. So, what do you think about Ari Melber, who tries to be the I hate I, I kind I hate of bristle it. at Ari Melber's effort to hip hop up everything? You know it why just... I hate it? Because what? because the quotes he uses are stupid. Right. Right. They're right. Stu- they're no good. They don't say anything. Right, and it, it, sometimes his or most of his guests push back. Uh, some no, some of his guests push back when they go. Well, maybe you know, but when he the thing is, I don't mind him having like hip hop artists on, but I really want smart hip hop artists on who know politics, not just a hip hop artist. He sometimes has on, but then he he asks people who are not really knowledgeable about hip hop some hip hop influence question to show his bona fides to his audience which is a political audience it's just crazy he asked the single dumbest question i have ever heard asked of a musician oh good he had george he had george clinton on right he asked george clinton george how do you stay funky oh my god it was oh my god "Ah!" i was like total cringe it was like what the fuck how do you stay healthy he was born funky he will die funky you don't become funky (laughs) <laughs> you can become funky, but the Hask, I'm telling you, that is as close as you can get to Larry Bruce's hilarious 1962 routine, How to Entertain Your Colored Friends at Parties. <laughs> yeah, Lenny does this bit that today couldn't be aired, but I might as well tell and so please, please understand uh, this is what he was saying in the 60s to make fun of patronizing. OK, <laughs> so he he has it's a really beautiful bit. I won't use the N word as Lenny uses it. But in any case, he the beginning of the bit is the guy trying to make his colored friend, as they use the term then at home. So. You want any fried chicken and watermelon? Make yeah. it, you know, whatever. Right. And then he kept saying things like, hey, that Joe Lewis, a hell of a fighter. You know? <laughs> I mean, and it, 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 it is kind of like it's all just, of it. It's, remote, it's, it's you know, just like that. I think, 
I think you could absolutely do a really fun documentary of cringy white people trying to act <laughs> black and or suck up to black artists in a completely weird, creepy way. Right. You could have three hours of footage. You could have – remember <laughs> there's the scene in Animal House when they show up at the uh, black – club where they the guys have played the fraternity yeah you know yeah, yeah. you know yeah. there's this i mean obviously black culture is so central to all of american culture but the way the way certain you know people go about it is so cringe inducing oh man <laughs> well anyway it's uh uh I, it's hard to believe that i've done 200 of these Yep. Uh, I need to before we end, I need to plug some forthcoming articles to be on the lookout for from me that don't involve music, but in one case do involve audio and uh, it involves corruption in a few federal agencies. And we managed to get hold of and if we're lucky, we'll still have the scoop because they haven't yet um, been aired in any full length capacity or in any even moderately, we have uh, audio tape of a um, apparently corrupt uh, contractor with a federal agency bragging about his different schemes. And one of his schemes is he uh, he has three companies, let's say, that he has a, a financial ties to or commissions with or links to. Mm-hmm. And then he basically – goes to a contracting officer who he's friendly with through various means that we haven't yet been able to expose and and then uh, says, uh, I've got these great companies for you. And then the, the, the contracting officer for the federal agency then gives him a, uh, a, a sole source bid where he doesn't have to bid. And even if he did, he would still win it. So I described this to a, a, a top expert in procurement and other schemes like the guy was bra- – we have on audio the guy bragging how he'd get contracts without even any th- bidding at all. Wow. They just put it out on the street. We have all this on audio. Hmm. It will be coming out in the nation, and then there'll be – that will be in a online piece. And then on the 26th, it will probably be an excerpt of it online earlier. We're having uh, – we're scheduled to have a print piece looking at federal contracting corruption and one of the people I interviewed for this piece, when I I shared some of these audio and transcripts with him, <laughs> this guy, he's like a procurement scholar. He'd been, you know, in federal acquisition for 35 years, including GAO. Mm-hmm. He said to me, in all my 35 years of procurement, I've never even heard of anything this bad, unethical, or illegal. <laughs> I went – I went, hmm, I must be on to something. So one of my – so I learned that about uh, – the federal government spends about $500 billion a year on contracts, and much of it is wasteful and insider dealing, and, 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 and no one in any government agency – no one in, in either party is paying a lot of close attention to what amounts to lots of widespread scams – that are costing the taxpayers. We know about it when it gets really public, like in the Iraq war, when there were pallets of billions of dollars of cash right. sitting around in warehouses. Or, yeah, yeah. you know. But in general, it goes on a day-to-day basis, and no one pays much attention. So that's so that's a piece um, that I, I have coming out. And then um, 
I looked at your fair state and I was disabused as I am over, continually disabused that your state in many respects is not the uh, lighthearted uh, uh, paradise of Bohemia as caricatured in Portlandia. Of course so not. So I uh, – as you well know, but many people outside the state still sort of think of it, oh, it's just so pleasant and everybody's liberal. So I did this investigative piece about how the state Medicaid uh, – uh, Medicaid uh, agency was moving to cut off all opioids to chronic pain patients who had been on them safely for years and who were not addicts. And eventually, my article, along with a lot of public pressure uh, and also FDA and CDC saying they shouldn't be doing forced tapering, got them to back off. But but they were on the verge of basically doing something that reporting I've done for Huffington Post and and uh, Tarbell.org, where the article on the Oregon Pain Commission showed up, would raise suicides by 300 percent. So they were basically doing things that would dramatically increase suicides and not the kind of assisted suicides that are legal in your state, would just have led people on their own to kill themselves in droves. And they were moving ahead with it. And fortunately, it's been halted temporarily. But it was an indication to me that – and you would know more about this because you live there – that the state is not necessarily this Valhalla of compassion <laughs> and and progressive liberalism on all fronts. But you know more about it than I do. Well, you know, uh, certainly has not uh, Portland has not uh, improved over the years. <laughs> but and, I still remember when and, you and, moved and, there compared to Baltimore. Well, anything compared to Baltimore. I mean, <laughs> right, you know I mean? right, right, right. A, a dirty toilet is better, you know, compared to Baltimore is, is better than, than Baltimore. But, right. Um, but anyway, so uh, yeah, uh, uh, it's it's weird having two hundred of these done. You know, it's weird. Well, it, you're you're in good company, uh, I think. So when looking back, can you you know, and we can hopefully, how many of those? How many? Because you've switched to a new uh, server and all that. Which? How many of your previous podcasts are available for listening and They're access? All up. They're all up. They're all up. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. So that means some of, even my past podcasts with you might That's be there? That's right. That's oh, right. good. That's okay. Right. Well, what are the ones – And if they're, not, if, if, they're, if they're not on the site, they're on our uh, SoundCloud page. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. So looking back, without sliding local artists that you admire, which ones are you proudest of in terms of – the quality of the conversation or show, showcasing some important well, artists. Two, two of the real memorable ones. Uh, one was with the, the great saxophone player from New Orleans, Reggie Houston. Right. And I hadn't talked to him for a while. A couple, actually, there are two of his that, that are, are, were, were just outstanding. One was he came in, and I hadn't seen him for a while. And uh, he just sat down, kind of slumped down, and said... Uh, I'm finally able to breathe. And I said, well, what's going on? So I turned on the, the recorder, and uh, this, it all came pouring out about there's a, a great, great um, uh, uh, blues, soul, gospel, jazz piano player named Janice Scroggins 
who had uh, passed away a few months earlier, and she was she was just everybody loved her, just loved. She was great, uh, and, 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 and it was she was the centerpiece of the of that music scene here. Right. And uh, he had been working with her too, and so and he was completely completely devastated about it, and it just all poured out. Uh, and he just kept. He just. I know. I know. He he, t- he must have talked for twenty minutes about her without stopping. Wow. And was. And then. And the other one was. Uh, I, I, I found out that Fast Domino had died uh, via a, a text from Reggie. And uh, I, I left him alone because I knew he was he was mourning because he was in Re- he was in Fast Domino's band for twenty years playing baritone sax. Wow. And uh, you know I gave him I gave it month or six weeks and i said i said are you ready to talk and he said yeah and it was just absolutely amazing to learn all about fats and how that how that band worked and the role of fats as opposed to the role of dave bartholomew and it was it was quite an oral history of 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 how of, of fats and, and how that worked and then the other one was i was watching uh, the the director's cut of woodstock a couple of years ago and there's a, 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 a Portland musician named Bobby Torres, who's a percussionist. And I knew that he was a member of Joe Cocker's band at that time. And he's, hmm. Bobby's a great guy. I've, I've interviewed him a million times. We get along really fine. And um, so I called him and said, listen. And, and, but anyway, so he wasn't the one tune that, he, that they used in, in the film, he wasn't playing on. Oh, <laughs> But I okay. said, I wonder what I wonder. I would love to hear what Bobby had to say about what went on at Woodstock. Right. And I, he came in and just told all kinds of amazing tales, you know, about about uh, what he did there and how it was, and and that was very 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 memorable. But yeah, but they're they're all they're all memorable. One well, way or in another. your mentioning Reggie, we can't, you know, even if you, I don't know if you wrote about it, but we, you brought me kind of as my guide to the New Orleans Jazz Fest after Katrina, oh, the first that, one that, after Katrina. That, that night, yeah. yeah. And there was this night in this restaurant that served as the literal savior of that, I guess it's what ward, second ward or whatever it was near yeah. the grounds yeah. and they were underwater and this bar restaurant was helping keep people alive and now people from around the country were coming back and yeah. there was this night yeah. of overwhelming emotion when Reggie and the others were playing it I still get choked up thinking about it I wrote yeah. about it yeah. for Huffington Post and Harry Shearer referenced it, and I was that was my effort to capture the emotion. And yeah. if uh, people, obviously, who listen to you on the radio and listen to your uh, see, you know, your podcast, know just how much you know and love New Orleans music, and you've been my guide to that for forever. So I thank you for that. And and I met Reggie and learned about, and met all these extraordinary people. The name of the place uh, was called it was called Bullets, right? Right. Yeah. It was it was one of the greatest evenings of music. And I, I, I would say it was the most emotionally fraught evening of music I've ever seen in my life. Huh. Huh. It was so powerful. Yeah. 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 yeah it was pretty amazing. Uh, but even recently, you know, uh, I, I've changed my I've changed my mind about um, length of podcasts because, you know, when podcasts became podcasts, 
you had, you had to do an hour. That was that was what right. you, there was supposed to be an hour. Well, I, 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 six months ago, I asked myself, why is that? It doesn't have to be an hour. It should be as long as it it, it should be. You know, I'm I'm not fitting into some time slot. You know, right. like, like in like in radio where you know right. you start and end you start and end at, at, at specific times and you've got to end at the specific time. And so, like for instance, a few weeks ago, a couple of months ago, I guess, I I did uh, I, I I did one of these with uh, Sean Levy, uh, the 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 author, uh, right. who has has the book on uh, Chateau Marmont. Right. And we did a really crisp, funny half hour. And that was fine. That's all. That's all it needed, you know. So you know, I, I'm, you know, I, I, I just don't think that uh, uh, the podcast format needs to needs to be any, any rigid in any way. Well, I don't think it is. Even uh, the pioneer who really broke out the form, which is Mark Mark Marin on WTF, he his 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 variant length, and sometimes he'll have two separate interviews. What I don't like about Marin's thing is his long meanderings that are basically him God, trying yes. out material and airing. But I'm willing to put up with it because I do think he, he elicits a lot of good questions. He did the worst interview with Nick Tachis that I've ever heard. It was horrible. <laughs> okay. It's That's the thing. Awful. Uh, on, but so on some off. musicians, I've, I've, I've liked some of his, some of his, you know, he he did win on T-Bone Burnett that I liked. I, in other words, it, it, it's hit and miss, I think, on musicians. If he knows the musicians work well, a musician. When it comes to a writer, yes, so you know Tashi's work as well as anyone, almost. It was, really follows his work. You've yeah. been a big champion of him. Mm-hmm. And have you invited him to be on your no, uh, not yet. As a matter of fact, I have a, I ha- but I do have a, a, an email into to Meltzer, who lives in Portland, but he has not, he hasn't, it's not replied. Son of a bitch. Anyway, really? yeah. The, anyway, the and Arnold? I did, a, I did a TV story on Richard Meltzer. He lives, he's been living in Portland for twenty, twenty-five years, thirty years. He was ama- is amazing. He did, he was an amazing writer. <laughs> well, Tom, you, I, I'm so glad that you're still helming this very important. Uh, music, all genre music website, unique in the Northwest, perhaps in the country, and I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for taking time out. I know that you're in the middle of something. This, this, it seems that whenever, whenever we want to do something, uh, it always seems like you're on on a, on a deadline. And because uh, I remember that time where you wrote that inter- that that review of that blues the blues movie. Right. I took, <laughs> I stopped in the middle of some major investigative project. Yes. Who cares if life say I had I went crazy over that movie. It was when but your book. Yeah, it, was, it was when you were writing I've your done, book. It was when you you were editing your book. Right. I was writing my book. I had like a chapter due the next day or something, or <laughs> and, you know I extended it uh, on blue. <laughs> There's a very touching and good one uh, called Satan and Adam. It's a, it, it was shown in some film festivals, and it's about an older um, blues guy who was uh, st- who used to play with Ray Charles and others, and then ended up as a street musician, and then a kind of Princeton white Princeton graduate, and they they be- form a bond and are actually become a uh, a musical pair that are very uh, have a modicum of success. And for some reason that I can't fathom, they there was footage of them for a lot of their career. So it's a very extraordinary and touching 
movie that has was includes footage from the 80s through now. It's pretty huh. remarkable, and I recommend it. Well, we started with movies and we ended with movies. <laughs> thanks okay, for taking thanks for taking the time out, Art. I know you I know how busy you are. Thank you. All right. Thank you.